Well, I'd like to thank you very much for the invitation to share with you tonight. It's a privilege to be back in Eden Derry Presbyterian Church. It means either you have forgotten all the wrong things that I said the last time I was here, or you have been so gracious that you have forgiven me for them. But either way, it is good to be with you. If you follow the Christian Institute work, you will know that we are facing many challenges in our nation, indeed throughout our Western societies and here in this province, we have seen the redefinition of marriage and we've seen that take effect within the last couple of weeks. We will also, before the end of next month, see changes to abortion law take effect. The law has already been changed, but the new regulations will come into effect. And those are things that ought to grieve us as Christian believers. We ought not to be indifferent to what is happening in our nation. It speaks in Second Peter about Lot living in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says of him in that society that he was vexed in his righteous soul over the unlawful deeds going on around him. And Lot was a weak believer. He was a compromised believer, and yet he was still commended because of his concern over what happened around him. And we ought also uh, to be touched by what is happening around. We ought not to be indifferent to it. And I will mention these issues as a report later on this evening. But before we come to the issues facing us as a society, we do want to take some time to anchor our thoughts in the Word of God. We don't believe things simply because they are our tradition or our custom or our culture or our habit. We believe things because the Word of God has already given instruction. So if you turn in your Bibles to the passage that we read from James chapter 2, from James chapter 2, and I want to spend some moments considering the theme of this passage, the theme of faith without works or faith without In verse 14, we are asked the question, what good is that faith or what good is such a faith? And in verse 20, we're told that faith without works is useless. In verses 17 and verse 26, we're told that faith without works or faith without deeds is dead. Being a Christian believer is more than simply attending church services on the Lord's day. Yes, of course, if someone is a Christian believer, then they should be out at church on the Lord's day. We should be out at worship. We're instructed not to forsake, not to abandon uh, the custom or the habit of assembling ourselves, meeting ourselves together in public worship. And if someone's a believer, they ought to be uh, out at worship on the Lord's day. But being a Christian is more than just attending church services. Being a Christian is more than just giving intellectual agreement to a series of doctrines or a confession of faith. Right doctrine is important. It is vital for the life of the church. We are commanded to give confession of our faith. Those things are important. But being a Christian believer is more than just intellectually agreeing with a series of doctrines. The Bible makes clear here in James chapter 2 that the kind of faith that saves, that real faith, is an active faith. It is a living faith. It makes a difference to how you and I conduct our lives. Becoming a Christian believer changes everything about us. It changes how you and I live. 
It changes how you and I speak. It changes how you and I work. But it also changes why we live, why we speak, and why we work. It means surrendering our whole lives or every area of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Bible is abundantly clear that no one can ever be justified before God by any works that we do. The Bible tells us our righteousnesses, our, our best efforts are as filthy rags in God's sight. The best things that I do, the best things that you do are still tainted with our sinful nature and our sinful habits and our works cannot atone or make right our sins. Only the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And we must be clear upon that, otherwise we lose the gospel. But Scripture does also teach that genuine Christian believers will do good works as a natural consequence of having saving faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in the very next verse, it goes on to say, For we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. These are not good works that could ever earn us salvation, but they are good works that flow from salvation and good works that bring glory to the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ tells his followers to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And note what we read in verses 15 to 17 of James chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So here in James chapter 2, the Bible makes abundantly clear that faith and works are inseparable. They go together. They are intrinsically linked. Faith without works is like telling a shivering, hungry person to keep warm, to keep well fed, but doing nothing to offer them a hot drink or a blanket. A profession of faith that does not impact upon how you and I live Monday through to Saturday is not real faith. It has no life about it. And here in James chapter 2, we are pointed to Abraham as a biblical example. Abraham's faith was shown to be real faith because it resulted in obedient living. It made a difference to how he conducted his life. So what are the good works that accompany saving faith? Well, verse 16 obviously provides two very practical examples. Giving clothing to the naked, giving food to the hungry. And elsewhere in scripture we are given other examples. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the bringing up of children is listed as a good work. 
And it is also about the motive that inspires us. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that whatsoever we do, we are to do all unto the glory of God. So to do a work for the glory of God, that is by definition a good work. The Bible commands Christians to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ tells his people to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. It can be easy to love people who are like us or people who may just be our neighbors, but to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible commands us to pray for kings and for all those in authority in the nation. And in Galatians chapter 6, whilst fellow believers, whilst the household of faith should be a priority, the Christian is called to do good to everyone, to do good unto all men. And of course, part of fulfilling this calling must mean having a concern for the nation in which God has placed us. Now, of course, it is right that our good works should reflect a desire to share the gospel with those that we meet. This, together with the discipling of Christian believers, is the prime mission of the church. But as individual Christians, you and I ought to be moved to share the general goodness of God with the wider society around us. And that must include engaging positively with those in authority in our nation to urge that God's law be better reflected in the laws of this land for his glory and for the good of our neighbor. Equally, Christians ought to take a stand against moves to turn away from or to dilute God's good design for human beings. So, for example, the institution of marriage as a union between one man and one woman for life is how God has designed it for human society. It is the best model for the bringing up of children. And in the same way, valuing the life of the elderly or valuing the life of the unborn means that Christians ought to resist abortion and euthanasia because those things are detrimental to society as well as displeasing in the sight of God. Now, granted, the Bible's position on some of those issues, on many of those issues, may not always be the popular position in society today. That is certainly true in the UK and in Western Europe at the present time. But you and I still have a responsibility to use whatever opportunity comes our way in providence to engage in the political process for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. So writing to our MLAs, writing to our MPs, our councillors about those issues, or submitting responses to government consultations, these are examples of good works that accompany saving faith. And if you want advice and guidance about when to respond to consultations and when to write to those in authority, then do join the Christian Institute's free mailing list. We do give you information uh, about that. But to be clear, I'm not saying that you need to be on our mailing list to be a genuine believer, good though that may be to do. But what I am saying is that God has specifically placed you and I here in this nation at this time in history to be salt and light for him. And we know that by believers doing good works for his glory, Christians can make a real difference to the lives of others 
and a real difference to the life of our whole nation. And tonight, those of you who know the Christian Institute work already know that we exist to help Christians engage in the issues of the day facing our land, to speak out biblical truth graciously, but also clearly on the issues of challenge that we face as Christians in our Western society. And I want to say a few things uh, about the issue of abortion, but that is the presenting issue. Why do we oppose? Why are we concerned about this change? Well, it is because the Bible teaches the sanctity of every human life. Scripture teaches that all human beings are created in the image of God, and all human beings are intrinsically valuable from conception. And in the Christian Institute, as an organization, as a researching and campaigning organization, we seek to defend the sanctity of human life. Now, it's important to acknowledge that the issues relating to the sanctity of life, and indeed the issues relating to the sanctity of marriage that are referred to this evening, these are not just issues of doctrine. Yes, they are doctrinal issues, but they are not only doctrinal issues. They are pastoral issues as well. And the matters that I talk about this evening may raise painful association for some of us gathered here. They may touch upon our own lives or the lives of family or friends or colleagues. Clear biblical principles have to be applied to many different practical situations without compromise, but with compassion. And I don't have time this evening to go into too much detail about the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life, but I would commend to you this booklet entitled, When Does Human Life Begin? It is an easy-to-read explanation of the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life from conception. And it has been written for the Christian Institute's research department by Dr. John Ling, who is a bioethicist at Aberystwyth University in Wales. So one who's dealing uh, with those issues and is a committed Christian believer. So do take copies of this booklet. They are on the literature table I've set in place by the door. And the good news is, as many of you know tonight, I'm a Scotsman by birth, but all of the literature is free. So you have been offered free literature from a Scotsman this evening. That doesn't happen uh, very often, but do avail of it, do take it. Uh, It's all there for this evening's uh, meeting. It's all there to help yourself too. But in essence, what does the Bible say about the sanctity of life? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, at verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So all human life is created in the image of God, and that is true regardless of how old or how young, regardless of how able-bodied or how disabled that life might be. In Psalm 139, And in Psalm 51, the Bible confirms that human life begins at conception. Uh, You can look up Psalm 139 later, but in Psalm 51, King David is confessing his sin, and he says at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin 
did my mother conceive me? And the psalmist is referring to himself using the pronouns I and me, not only at birth, but as an embryo from conception. And of course, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And the sixth commandment makes clear that murder is sinful. So from these biblical principles, we can draw a number of conclusions. First of all, abortion, that is the destruction of human life between conception and birth, is wrong. Scientific experiments that destroy human embryos or create life by cloning are also wrong. And all forms of euthanasia, that is the intentional killing of someone because their life is claimed not to be worth living, that is wrong as well. And that includes assisting in the suicide of someone who claims that they want to die. And yet what do we find in our own nation today? Well, under the terms of the Abortion Act of 1967, more than 9 million babies have been aborted in England, Scotland and Wales over the last five decades. In 2018, which is the last year I have figures for, in that one year alone, 218,581 children were aborted on the mainland. That runs to almost 600 every day for every one of the 365 days of that year. It is now the situation that almost one in four of all pregnancies on the mainland ends with the child being aborted. And then, of course, in 2018, the Irish Republic voted by a two-thirds majority to remove its constitutional ban on abortion. And with liberal abortion regimes now operating in England, Scotland and Wales and in the Irish Republic, there has been considerable political and legal pressure upon Northern Ireland to overturn the pro-life legal framework. And some very hard and very tragic cases have been used by the media in a bid to lobby for change in the law. And I don't diminish the fact that those are very hard cases. Those are very tragic cases. But as Christian believers, we must defend the sanctity of all human life from conception. And this remains true even if a child might be born with a disability or with a life-limiting condition. An unborn child who is handicapped has no less right to life than any other child. And whilst many very hard cases were highlighted in the BBC over the last five or six years in a bid to campaign for a change in the law and to alter public opinion, whilst that has been done, the Christian Institute has also interviewed people who have experienced some of the hardest of circumstances in relation to the sanctity of human life. And we have produced a DVD in which those individuals share their story. In fact, some of those stories are harder even than some of the cases that have been highlighted in the media in recent years. This is very, very powerful. It's not shock tactics. It doesn't show abortion procedure or anything like that. And it is not me 
talking about hard cases in relation to the sanctity of life, or my colleagues talking about those hard cases. This is people who have been in those hard cases sharing why they choose life. I would highly commend this DVD to you because it does answer uh, some of the cases that have been highlighted uh, by the media in recent years and helps to give a different perspective on those circumstances. It's produced in such a way that you could pass this on to a non-Christian friend. And again, copies are on the literature table by the door there. Research was commissioned by the Both Lives Matter campaign in 2018. And that research, that academic research, found that approximately 100,000 people are alive today because Northern Ireland did not introduce the Abortion Act in 1967. So the laws in Northern Ireland to date have saved and have protected human lives. And as recently as 2016, a majority of MLAs in the Assembly voted to retain the current pro-life framework here. But many of you will know, in the summer that has gone by in July, Stella Creasy, who is a Labour MP for Walthamstow in Greater London, she has no elected interest in Northern Ireland, Miss Creasy tabled an amendment to the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill, now an act, to extend abortion to this province. Now, that bill was an administrative piece of legislation. It was designed to address timescales for the restoration of devolution. The scope of the bill had nothing to do with abortion or with homosexual marriage. But a number of activist MPs on the mainland hijacked the bill by tabling amendments on these matters. And sadly, back in July, the Speaker's office permitted those amendments to be debated. MPs voted by 332 to 99 in favour of extending abortion to this province. And it was not, that amendment was not supported by any MP sitting in Westminster from Northern Ireland, but it was backed by a majority of MPs from England, Scotland and Wales. And under the terms of Miss Creasy's amendment, the Secretary of State held a public consultation on changing uh, the legal framework in relation to abortion here during November and the first half of December. That public consultation has been completed and the Secretary of State is now to bring forward uh, an, a new legal framework uh, imposing abortion in this province before the end of March. That ha as yet has not been published uh, we don't know the extent of the abortion provision, whether there will be time limits upon it. We don't know uh, what conscience protection will be provided for in that uh, in relation to medical staff, Christians uh, in the medical field who may be affected by this change. We must pray that liberty of conscience will be protected, but we must pray even more so that Northern Ireland, that the whole of the UK, that the Irish Republic, indeed, that our Western nations would once again reaffirm the value of every single 
human life. And as this issue unfolds, as regulations are laid at Westminster, as these are applied in the coming weeks and months, the Christian Institute will be writing to those of you who are on our mailing list. We will update you on what is happening, where it's appropriate to take action. We will give you advice on when to do so. So we'd encourage you to keep up to date with that. I want also to move on to the other uh, issue where we have seen uh, legal change in this province uh, in recent weeks, uh, and that is the redefinition of marriage. But again, as with the abortion issue, it is the biblical principle behind the sanctity of life, and with the redefinition of marriage, the biblical principle uh, that we are concerned with is the sanctity of marriage. And I want just to say to give you a quick observation. I don't know about the Faith Mission Bookshop in Portadown, so I'm not making comment upon it. But if you go into a typical Christian bookstore, either here or in England, Scotland or Wales, and you go to the section on marriage, you will find lots and lots of titles about how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife. You will find lots and lots of titles about how to be godly parents You will find many titles for engaged couples in preparation for marriage, and those are all very important things. We need good biblical teaching on those matters, but they all tend to emphasize the inward-looking aspects of marriage, about what marriage means for the individuals involved, and they don't tend to address the outward-looking aspects of marriage, i.e. the place of marriage in public society, its function, its social function, its role as an institution. And so in the next moment or two, I want to highlight to you a number of issues in relation to marriage as an institution and the outward-looking aspects of marriage. And I want to note three points this evening. And the first of them is this, that the institution of marriage is foundational to human society, by which I mean that so many other aspects of society depend upon it. The family unit is the basic building block of any society, not just Western societies. It's the basic building block in third world societies, in other societies, and has been throughout history. And the marriage bond is at the heart or the backbone of the family unit. So if the institution of marriage is eroded or is weakened, then other things in society that depend upon the institution of marriage are eroded and weakened as well. Genesis chapter 2 records for us that marriage was instituted by God at creation. It's not a social construct that evolved over the centuries. It is something that God set in place to help fulfill the creation mandate in Genesis Chapter 2, we read that God placed man in the Garden of Eden to care for it, to cultivate it, to tend it. And in Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or help meet for him. And the Hebrew word that is translated in our Bibles as help meet or helper fit literally means like opposite. Like him, but the opposite of him. That's a good description of the complementary characteristics of male and female. So marriage was instituted by God to enable human beings to do the jobs that they were created to do, to work, to be stewards of the creation, to have children and to raise those children to be productive. So marriage is foundational 
to all of this human activity. And our Savior affirms that marriage is foundational in Matthew chapter 19. The Lord Jesus Christ is being tested by the Pharisees about marriage, and in his answer, he refers back to Genesis chapter 2 as the basis of our understanding about the institution of marriage. So the institution of marriage is foundational. But secondly, the institution of marriage is universal. There are some things given in the Word of God that are only meant for Christian believers. For example, the Lord's Supper, communion, that is not meant to be observed by everybody in this world. It is only meant to be observed by God's redeemed people. But there are other things given in Scripture for all people everywhere throughout history. For example, the law of murder. A person does not need to be a Christian believer to know that murder is wrong. Or the law on theft. Someone does not need to be a Christian to know that stealing is wrong. Some things are given in Scripture universally. And the institution of marriage is something that is universal. It was instituted by God at creation, given to the whole human race. It's not something that is peculiar to the Christian faith. It is what theologians call a creation ordinance. Throughout history, across all manners of nations and societies, marriage exists universally. Yes, there have been societies that have undermined marriage or distorted it, but generally speaking, ever since this world began, men and women have been committing themselves to one another in lifelong marriages. And the Bible clearly teaches the universality of marriage. Because in Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the time that was before the flood. And he says, of that time that men and women were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered into the ark. And in the very next verse, our Savior says, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching that the institution of marriage is ever-present throughout human history until his return. And it is important we recognize that marriage is universal because sometimes Christians can fall into a trap of thinking that marriage is just a Christian institution and that marriage is not real marriage unless it's a Christian marriage. But if an unbelieving man marries an unbelieving woman, if they commit themselves to one another for life, to the exclusion of all others, then they are just as much married as two Christians who get married in a church building. Yes, of course, if a couple are Christian believers, then their faith brings a powerful dimension to the marriage that otherwise is absent. And yes, if someone is a Christian believer, they should only marry a fellow believer. We are not to get ourselves unequally yoked. But ultimately, a couple are just as much married whether or not they get married in a church building or in a council registry office. So this means that Christians should not accept the false divide being put out in the media between so-called civil marriage and so-called religious marriage. Some people in the media and the BBC have been arguing that civil marriage is a matter for the state, for the government, and therefore religious groups and churches should keep quiet 
about it. The argument goes something like this. It says, let the government, let the politicians, let the state define civil marriage and leave churches to define religious marriage. But marriage is universal. It cannot be split along secular versus religious lines. There's only one definition of a marriage. One man and one woman joined together for life to the exclusion of all others. That definition stands whether or not the marriage has been entered into through a religious ceremony or through a civil ceremony. So marriage is universal. But thirdly, the institution of marriage is beneficial. It was given by God to be a good thing for human society, to provide for mutual support between husband and wife. The complementary natures of male and female are integral to the design of marriage. It was given to provide for the procreation of children. It's basic biology. It takes a man and a woman to create a baby. And when it comes to the raising of children, children were designed to need a mother and a father, a male and a female role model. And the institution of marriage is beneficial because it provides for the restraint of sin. Strong marriages help a community to stick together. But if marriages are attacked and undermined in our nation, then we see the effect of that on our streets. We see the effect of that in our schools. We see the heartbreak. We see the pain. We see the wreckage that is left behind. Now, of course, nobody's relationship, nobody's marriage will be perfect. We're all sinners uh, by nature. We're not in a state of perfection. But a good marriage will help to tackle the natural selfishness of the fallen human heart. So given that the institution of marriage is foundational to society, given that it's universal across cultures and nations, given that it's beneficial for the human race, defending marriage is about love, not about hatred. When Christian believers defend the true meaning of marriage in a nation, we do so out of love, We do so out of a genuine belief that marriage is foundational to happy lives. It is good for human society. It's good for our neighbor. We disagree with the homosexual activists who have been campaigning to redefine marriage. We disagree with them. But disagreement is not the same thing as hatred. We defend the true meaning of marriage out of love. Love for the honor of our Savior's name and love for our neighbor and fellow citizen. So what has happened to the institution of marriage in our nation? Well, many of you will know that marriage was redefined in law in England and Wales in 2013, and in Scotland just a month or two later at the beginning of 2014. And of course, in 2015, same-sex marriage was introduced in the Irish Republic, and a number of other mainly Western countries have taken the very radical step of redefining marriage in their law. And Northern Ireland has been criticised in the media, especially on the BBC, over the last couple of years. People have thrown insults and said, well, they're living on the wrong side of history, they're living in the dark ages, they're out of step with the rest of the world because of our laws and marriage. And those insults have been banded against Northern Ireland for the last seven or eight years. Well, it's actually worth looking at reality. It's worth looking at the facts. Only 28 
of the 193 countries that are members of the United Nations, only 28 of those countries have taken the radical step of introducing homosexual marriage in law. So Northern Ireland's laws to date have been in step with the rest, the vast majority of countries in our world, and they've been in step with what nations have recognised marriage as for centuries through history. And of course, uh, there were five attempts at Stormont before uh, it, it was suspended in 2016. There were five attempts to redefine marriage brought before MLAs. Uh, but in a similar vein to the abortion issue, activists at Westminster took opportunity with the suspension of the Assembly to seek to impose same-sex marriage in the law of this province. And in July past, Conor McGinn, who is an MP for St. Helens near Liverpool, tabled an amendment to the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill, now an act, again requiring... The